Chapter 36, Part 1 of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Fry, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, Volume 2 by Moncure Conway. Chapter 36, Part 1. The Paris Exposition, 1867. The chief delight in Paris is to be there. With what gentle ecstasy did I wander through the fascinating streets and boulevards, the parks where there were singing fountains, where earth, sky, and human life were a romance into which I felt myself easily woven. In 1867, it was announced that the exposition would be opened by the Emperor on April 1st, and it was my pleasant journalistic duty to be present. During the preceding week, Paris swarmed with foreigners, and the theaters entertained them with spectacles requiring no knowledge of French. Nielsen and Carvalho were singing in the Magic Flute at the Lyric, Patti at the Grand Opera, Ada Isaacs Mencken was dashing up the rocks at the Gaeta at Mazeppa, lashed to a real horse, and there were splendid ballets of the Deluge and of Paradise, in which last Abingdon was drawing crowds by her interpretation of Eve. The wise serpent turned into a handsome youth and tempted Eve by holding before her a hand mirror. The mid-Lent fete preceded by a few days the opening of the exposition. Along the boulevards, ballet dancers, female pages, Apollos, Venuses, crowded by day. And in the evening there were, it was said, a hundred ball mosques. I visited those at the Châtelet Theatre and the Grand Opera. Gay were the revels and startling the costumes, but in none any drunkenness or rudeness. At the opera ball, a small troop of soldiers entered at half-past five, took their place in front of the band on the stage, and thence, with slow tread, inevitable but without severity, moved across the room. It was strange to see the contrast of the absolute vacancy behind these soldiers, with the leaping and laughing crowd retreating before them. A few more wild arms flung about, nymphs and goddesses borne aloft on young men's shoulders, and the scene dissolved into a multitude of fantastic dances under the bright moon until the imperial sun sent its troop of beams to clear the outside theatre also it was understood that there would be no ceremony at the inauguration but that the emperor and his suite would visit the exposition on april first after which it would be open to the public he arrived as the clock struck two attended by his ministers and the corps legislatif the most prominent figure near the emperor was Drouin de la Huys, a handsome, broad-faced man of fifty years, who wore his insignia proudly. Thiers, with the historic halo about him, was in countenance the most intellectual man present. Many who then first saw the empress must have been disenchanted. Instead of the refined and stately lady of the portraits, here was a small woman with heavy underface and unhealthy complexion. The emperor's face was a study. 
a few feet behind him as he stood receiving the guests i remarked the sculptured figure of a young woman with a laughing face the chin resting on her hand at the next step one discovered that this happy face was a mask which the hand had just removed disclosing behind it a careworn countenance in pathetic contrast with the mask it may have been this sculpture that suggested to me the mask of the crowned man who smiled so blandly on those about him for i wrote this note on the evening of the day on which as my invitation required i had been presented to the emperor and empress in the exposition art gallery and when i did not know the humiliation he had suffered that very morning the dutch forehead the hooked nose propping it the feeble underlip and retreating chin might all have been carved wood for any indication of feeling on them but at that moment napoleon the third knew that maximilian was on his way to execution in mexico and that he was the executioner the emperor and his wife departed i rushed to the american section i found there a good large room with just two objects visible church's great painting of niagara and lawrence's portrait of emerson other americans who had also come with enthusiastic expectations recalled that it was all fool's day but somehow this exhibition made on me a mystical impression america's greatest physical wonder and the man to match it were sufficiently representative of the real and unimported america there were a number of unopened boxes strewn about from which our clever imitations of what was better done elsewhere would emerge at the close of june i revisited the exposition paris was all efflorescent for the newly arrived sultan i had a good place as the representative of harper's magazine to witness the reception of the orientals by the emperor in the palais d'industrie there was no pere perdure in those days and baron haussmann prefect of the seine had filled the room with beautiful women whose charms were liberally displayed in both eastern and european costumes beside the emperor stood princes jerome and murat the approach of the sultan was reported by the blare of trumpets which from being faint gradually became louder until his majesty entered next abdul aziz walked his three sons and behind them the viceroy of egypt and eight turkish ministers of all these the one most plainly arrayed was the sultan who was also simple in his manners this reception was on sunday next day july first was the grand fete of the exposition of the sixteen thousand persons in the palais d'industrie and the many high personages just two really interested me rossini and felicien david the two composers sat together handsome and portly rossini david dreamy as his desert while a thousand instruments and voices rendered the hymn composed by rossini for the occasion it consisted of a grand overture followed by vocal parts when the voices ceased the instruments entered upon a grand march among the orchestral instruments were enormous bells and cannon outside the building the performers upon which sat with telegraph batteries for keys when the bells rang outside and the cannon thundered their notes the audience was lifted as by a whirlwind of enthusiasm mr ruher read the report of the commission of prizes and the emperor gave a well-delivered address the artist cabanal was the first to receive a prize he was a short thick-set man with a young face but gray hair his face pale and thin as if from overwork 
next Messonnier, small active precise in movement italian in complexion i was much impressed by the lowly manner and intellectual look of the roman friar father secchi whose meteorological and astronomical clock was the wonder of the scientific world when he advanced to receive a gold medal and was decorated with the cross of the legion of honor the chief sensation was when the young prince imperial with considerable grace started forward and took his father's place in order to present the emperor with the gold medal awarded for the best model of a laborer's cottage next day the execution of maximilian in mexico was announced a telegram had been handed to the emperor during the prize-giving and if it contained the gruesome tidings he certainly commanded his face well all noticed that yankee doodle and the star-spangled banner were not included among the national airs i was at the house of frolic the artist whose albums of mademoiselle lily were delighting americans on the afternoon of july second madame and her little lily were merry and entertaining in the beautiful interior when frolic entered and announced with agitation that maximilian had been shot the tragedy in mexico pronounced by ruhar quote, the one blot on a beautiful tableau end quote, proved a blot so vast that little else could be seen everyone saw at the door of the tuileries the mangled corpse of a prince and beside it a deranged princess the grand military review prepared for the sultan was postponed we americans found ourselves under the mexican shadow two fourth of july celebrations had been arranged one at the pre-chatelaine bois de boulogne the other a dinner at the grand hotel a request came that both should be cancelled the committee of the open-air fete consented but the committee of the dinner insisted alleging that it was a private one for americans after a warm discussion and a promise by the committee that there should be little speaking and that cautious the officials retired general dix opposed the banquet from which he was conspicuously absent as also was george bancroft then in paris who sent no letter in response to his invitation about three hundred ladies and gentlemen were present at the grand hotel james milliken of philadelphia presided only a third of the company raised their glasses to the health of president johnson and the refusal of many to rise to the toast to the emperor threatened trouble Governor Curtin, J. W. Fournay, Judge Allison, and others were called for but kept silent. The only extended speech was by Elliot Cowden, who spoke of the services of France to America. Most of us were feeling the dinner dull when suddenly Dr. Mary Walker extemporized a sensation. Over her famous American dress, masculine, she wore a large sash of stars and stripes in this costume she walked up to the head of the table before the company and before the amazed milliken could interfere uttered a tribute to quote, our soldiers and sailors end quote, dramatically kissed the flag she wore and glided to her seat dr mary walker did not wait for the dancing that followed and when she left received an ovation from the french crowd in the courtyard on account of the glorious independence of her trousers nowise concealed but decorated by her patriotic sash the applause must have been for dr mary walker's independence uglier dress was never worn the three later expositions in paris all of which i witnessed were by no means so entertaining as that of eighteen sixty seven 
they were larger and the edifices grander but the democratic spirit of uniformity and of curbing eccentricity was apparent in eighteen sixty seven there was no tartuffe to insist on dressing tribal visitors to suit english matrons no restriction on the amusements the entertaining barbarians brought with them their actual manners and costumes the remotest provinces of europe were represented by their genuine peasants the ethnology of the exposition was perfect artists who have since become rich and unambitious were then aspirants and did their very best for the exposition every nation also aspired to make a fine show at paris and achievements in the means of mutual destruction invaded but slightly the beautiful cosmos which made the champ de mars the arena of peace i occasionally entered the hall where the great chess players competed steinitz de vere kalish de riviere zarnowski galmeo rousseau lloyd dr richardson of boston and others waged their wars on checkered fields alexander the great is said to have been ashamed of his interest in that game but the world might have been happier if alexander had confined his struggles to the chessboard when the exposition was first planned the french government had sent out to all countries requests for seeds of their characteristic flowers there was a universal compliance the seeds were sown in carefully designed beds of the park around the palais d'industrie and sprang up finally every zone had set in paris its floral autograph one soft morning it occurred to me to walk away from the building and pause here and there to listen to the general sound the sharpest noises were the first to lose their distinctness the loudest machine did not reach so far as the orchestral violin the vast roar of the machinery was subdued to the solemn bass the human tongues and the pianos became as the dreamy croon of summer bees the russian organ like a great musical loom overbore all sounds and wove them and finally itself into one grand ineffable voice the exposition set me dreaming of the federation of the world if as an eastern proverb says for one whose leg is broken the whole world limps it is equally true that the world moves gaily for one to whom fortune smiles although my wife and i were getting on comfortably in london in eighteen sixty seven we had to economize more than i liked but during the early part of the exposition mr fletcher harper of new york whom i did not know sent me an invitation to dine with him at the grand hotel and there made with me a generous contract to write for harper's magazine my engagement to begin with an article on the exposition next morning in my hotel de louvois my window opening over the green square and its fountain and children i began the descriptive article and all the horizon of humanity was aglow as if with a dawn when i had returned to london i was one day telling louis blanc of the beautiful things i had seen and the brilliant fetes and theatres he said quote, that is the way of the empire it says to the people amuse yourselves so long as you let politics alone you can enjoy yourselves just as you please amuse yourselves leave the government to us but it cannot last End quote. the french exiles in london were admirable men there was about them none of the melancholy of mazzini nor any disposition to conspire against napoleon the third they all knew english and utilized their exile to study english literature and search the history of their own country recorded in english archives 
one was scholarly talandier who had become professor of the french language and literature at stonyhurst but sometimes came to london from him i first gained a knowledge of the importance of rabelais from whose works he compiled a volume for french schools talandier told me that a great architect of his acquaintance in paris had set himself to make an exact design of the imaginary abbey of thelim so minutely described by rabelais and told him that if such an edifice were to be erected it would be the most perfect building ever known ledru rollin was a large and amiable man with a strong solid brow and head victor schoelcher i had rarely met in london but had an interview with him after his return to paris he was just then in the struggle to exorcise religion from the new constitution and told me that although the great majority of the legislators were as heretical as himself he was the first who had ever from the tribune declared himself an atheist with louis blanc and his wife we formed a close friendship in london frode believed that blanc had some napoleon blood in him on what grounds i know not small in form he was great in intellect and heart and a genuine orator even in english despite the insuperable accent his thought was quick as light whatever point might be raised having any connection with politics or social subjects his brightening eyes would swiftly announce that he had explored it and the result was stated with lucidity and with the logic that in him was as organic as his eye he was without any consciousness of his extraordinary powers of conversation in his memory were stored by his experiences many quaint and pertinent incidents he was once visited by a socialist pauper who urged him to demand equal distribution of property louis blanc requested him to go at once to rothschild and ask for half his treasures and if the baron objected he must say quote, you are welcome to come and take mine isn't that fair End quote if rothschild was convinced the socialist might return to him blanc and he would arrange the decree he told me of two veteran radicals in paris who had worked together fraternally for many years one of them remarked that louis napoleon was a fool no said the other he is a knave on that issue they quarreled and never spoke to each other again some fundamental problem in religion being raised louis blanc reserved on such things said that he once heard two frenchmen discussing immortality one denying the other affirming eugene sue who sat near interrupted their talk and said quote, i consider you both equally audacious men End quote. louis blanc and his brother charles afterwards minister of fine arts were twins when dining with them in paris i mentioned the rumor that they were the original of the melodrama the corsican brothers and that the incident of one feeling at a great distance the danger menacing his brother and hastening to him was founded in fact they both smiled and said that they were familiar with the legend which was an extreme exaggeration madame blanc was i believe an alsatian and a lady of much good sense but she could hardly manage a conversation in english they had no children among the english and the german radicals the napoleonic prophecy was proverbial quote, all europe must become either cossack or republican end quote, and there grew in me enough of this superstition to make me feel that there must be something preternatural in slavic satan simply as a demonologist i must go to russia thomas paine writing from england seventeen eighty eight to jefferson said quote, 
the enmity of this country against russia is as bitter as it ever was against america and is carried to every pitch of abuse and vulgarity during my sojourn in england this hatred against russia was as strong as in Paine's time for every humane action by russia even for the emancipation of serfs some diabolical motive was imagined the friendship displayed by russia for the united states did not conciliate even the radical sympathizers with the north in eighteen sixty five i made the acquaintance of prince galitzin of ostend and my conversations with him he spoke english awakened me to the fact that the anti-russian feeling in england was based on pure ignorance in the year following i wrote for the fortnightly review an article entitled russia and america which was not inspired by friendship for russia but by fear that the dispute between england and america might issue in war in eighteen sixty seven i was invited by messieurs castel to become editor of a daily paper they were about starting the echo it was in many ways tempting but i declined and it passed into the care of miss frances power cobb whose articles in it displayed varieties of ability that astonished even her admirers End of chapter 36, part 1